Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. India's economic growth is getting out of a hole and unemployment is dropping. But there's an enormous part of the potential labor force that won't be contributing to the recovery, most of the country's women. We ask why so few of them are in work. And in Cuba, anti-government sentiment is getting a boost from an unlikely source, a protest anthem penned by big-name artists who once applauded the communist leadership. We take a listen to the track that's rattling the regime. First up, though. At a rally yesterday, the prime minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, warned of an attempted military coup. He told crowds it was the army's job to defend the country, and that it was up to the people to decide whether or not he should step down. Mr. Pashinyan has faced protests since a peace deal was struck in November, in which Azerbaijan gained territory in Nagorno-Karabakh, a largely ethnic Armenian enclave. Mr. Pashinyan has faced protests since a peace deal was struck in November, in which Azerbaijan gained territory in Nagorno-Karabakh, a largely ethnic Armenian enclave. Clashes over the region had erupted repeatedly since 1994, drawing in Russia, which stood behind Armenia, and Turkey, which backed Azerbaijan. But in the end, it was Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who put it all to rest, brokering a peace deal. That's just one sign of a remarkable political alliance that's picking away at the post-Cold War geopolitical order. So I think it helps to go back to the really low point of the relationship, which was in 2015. Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor. Turkey shot down a Russian warplane which had been flying over Syria and entered its airspace. And this happened after repeated warnings to the Russian pilot. And the warnings became increasingly urgent. They were ignored and Turkish F-16 fighters that were patrolling shot the plane down. Remember, Turkey is a NATO member and it had engaged with Russia militarily. That's uh, not something that happens often. And Russia responded quite vigorously by imposing sanctions on Turkish products. And it uh, bombed ethnic Turkmen fighters in northern Syria that are allies of the Turks. And what happened then? So that was uh, towards the end of 2015 and into the beginning of 2016. But then there was a, a dramatic shift. If you remember, in the summer of 2016, 
There was an attempted coup. Jets overhead, the world watched in shock as a military coup unfolded in Turkey. A key U.S. ally, a major strategic partner in the fight against ISIS and a country... And President Putin was quick to call President Erdogan and commiserate, show solidarity. There is some suspicion in Turkey anyway that he gave some advance warning to Erdogan that his life was in danger, helped move him out of the area where he might have been bombed. And from that point onwards, things have changed dramatically and the two men have developed this kind of entente, this brotherhood of hard power. And what is it that had changed between the downing of the bomber and this evident beginning of a friendship? Well, I think they, first of all, recognize in one another leaders who know how to use power in a forceful way. But there are other similarities between them in terms of their authoritarian style of leadership at home. And there's a a common set of grievances against the West In Turkey's case, decades of not being properly accepted, wanting at one stage to join the European Union, but being put on hold. And I think one of the reasons why the attempted coup was such a turning point for Erdogan is that he came under attack from his own planes and he felt that NATO hadn't properly come to his support. NATO countries were slow to express solidarity. So he started to think that maybe Putin was someone he could depend upon for his own survival, where he couldn't necessarily depend on NATO partners. And how has the relationship between these two men evolved since then? Well, it's developed in some very concrete ways. Erdogan has bought from Russia a so-called S-400 air defense system. So it's a NATO country, remember, that is buying a Russian air defense system. That has not delighted Turkey's NATO partners. It's uh, meant that it's been kicked out of the F-35 fighter jet program that uh, NATO has. It's faced sanctions from America. And despite all that, it's gone ahead. And on the ground in particularly Syria, it's led to a kind of accommodation, even though they're on opposite sides. They've managed to accommodate each other's objectives, in particular Turkey, vis-a-vis the Kurds. And most recently, they've accommodated each other in the South Caucasus, where again, they support opposite sides, but Russia has played its role as a mediator. Turkey's supported Azerbaijan, and they've managed to end up with a result that suits them both well. Russia has peacekeeping troops on the ground. Turkey has an economic opportunity. And the area that, of course, has missed out, has got nothing out of this, is the West. You mentioned the word accommodating in, in the sense that, that perhaps they're just uh, essentially keeping out from under each other's feet, or, or is there more to it than that? No, there is more to it than that because they particularly developed closer ties economically. The two economies have been struggling so they can do with all the support they can get. And although Russia has a big surplus with Turkey, Turkish contractors get a lot of business from Russia. So there's the economic aspect of the relationship is particularly important. And for Putin to have Turkey as an awkward member of NATO driving a wedge within NATO That's a huge attraction for him. And for Erdogan, sometimes to be able to play off the West and Russia, that's also helpful so that they can play the power game very effectively by using each other. And given all of that, would you call this an alliance proper? And and if so, what should the West make of it? Well, it's a remarkable development given the long history between the two countries going back centuries. It's remarkable when you think of the 
more recent history of the two literally coming to blows as recently as 2015. But it's far from being an alliance. Turkey is still a NATO member. That's valuable to it. And it's also brittle. It's fragile. Remember, they are on opposite sides, even where they're accommodating each other. In places like Syria, in Libya, they have differences over Ukraine, over Georgia as well. So there are many places where this could deteriorate rapidly. It's rather brittle. It's recent. It depends too much on personalities with big egos. So it does mean that there's absolutely no guarantee that this is going to last or even develop further. So in that sense, you think the West doesn't need to worry because the alliance will eventually fall apart? No, I think far from it. It's a concern for the West. It's certainly a challenge. One of the things that will be on the radar screen of the Biden administration, it's a worry that there is this increasingly close relationship between a big, important NATO member and Russia. And although it's brittle, although it could blow up in various ways, It's a serious concern and a worry that a NATO member like Turkey could drift further away from its moorings. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For plenty more analysis like this, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief and is based in a slightly noisy office in Delhi. Before the COVID epidemic, she was working part-time for about six different families and making a decent income. And during the lockdown phase of the pandemic, she lost four out of those six jobs. And so her income collapsed by two-thirds, and she has yet to regain her full income. Presumably, Mrs. Pavda's story is a common one. Very much so. Unfortunately, there was a household survey done in Mumbai, where she lives. They divided the respondents among five different socioeconomic groups and discovered that for the top group, the general decline in income during the pandemic was about 20%. For the bottom group, the poorest, it was more like close to 50%. The same survey also found that the losses in jobs 
were more extreme for women than for men. About three quarters of men said their work had been affected during the lockdown and pandemic to one extent or another, but the proportion for women was almost 90%. I mean, that's a, a pattern we have seen to greater and lesser degrees kind of around the world, even in richer countries. Is there anything particular to India that makes that so striking? Yeah, there are several reasons why it's pretty striking in India. One is that women in India tend to have the kind of lower paying, precarious jobs to begin with, such as as domestic servants, which means that they're more liable to you know, lose their jobs. But there are also particular professions where women predominate. One is as school teachers. Nearly half a million private schools in India closed or were forced to cut down during the pandemic. And that put about 5 million teachers out of work. And many of those teachers were women. It's also the case that many more women than men during the lockdown and closure of schools left their jobs voluntarily to go back home and look after their kids. Okay, those are the the kind of pandemic effects, but there's more than that going on here, right? There's sort of structural reasons why women are a smaller part of the workforce in India and have been a diminishing part. Farms have mechanized. Women used to do a lot of the farm work and no longer do. And also it's the case that in Indian society, and this isn't only true of India, there are other countries where this is similar, the rise in living standards from deep poverty to less deep poverty has made many families withdraw women from the workforce because they can now afford not to work. So it used to be that women were forced to work and now not having to work is a sign of relative prosperity. The International Labour Organization, to put things in perspective globally, it reckons that India's female participation in labour fell from almost 26% in 2010 to less than 21% in 2019. And some Indian economists think that those ILO figures are actually too high and that the actual participation rate, if you look very carefully at who's actually in a job right now, could be as low as 7% for Indian women in cities right now. So it was already an astonishingly low labor force participation rate before the pandemic and dropping still. I mean, does that not put constraints on the Indian economy? Yes, it does. It means that India, in terms of competing with other countries, is really at a disadvantage. It's quite soon within the next year, it's thought that India will actually officially have a bigger population than China. But the surprising thing is that the Indian workforce is is just over half the size of China's because so few women work in India. It could add 100 million more people to the workforce by one calculation if Indian women worked at the same ratio that women in in China, for example, work. That's the same as the total number of workers, male and female, in France, Germany and Italy combined. I mean, that's a huge workforce. It's just missing right now from India's equation. But you say that there are historical, structural, societal reasons for that. I mean, what's to be done? There are many things to be done. There are myths. One is the fact that a lot of the women on the sidelines of the economy are not there by choice. I mean, they say they would work if they could work. So I think there's a change in these attitudes in India needs to happen on that score. But the government can also promote employment in general and increase the size of the workforce by many means, by reducing the difficulty of hiring people. I mean, as it is now, a lot of Indian companies tend to either hire contract labor so they don't have to put people on their payroll or just would rather invest in capital than labor because the laws about employing people are so complicated in India. One way to increase employment generally is to give more incentives to companies to hire people. And also the government itself, astonishingly, in a country as big as India, the Indian government actually employs relatively very few people. Less than 4% of the Indian workforce is employed by the government. Of those, there's 3 million workers in the central government, only 11% are women. So there's obviously huge scope for the government itself to actually start the pattern of hiring more women by doing so itself. So there are things that it can do. I mean, is there the will to do so? 
Yeah, I mean, the government has tried, you know, their quotas, for example, the police force, there's a quota for women where they try to hire more women. But the fact is that in the, in the Indian police until now, only 9% of the police force is female. So I think the government just has to be more serious about this and push this as a, as a matter of higher priority. It doesn't rank high on the priority list. Women's employment is a problem that can be solved in India. It's not intrinsically unsolvable. And there has been transformation and change in the way that Indians look at female employment. So it is all within the realm of possibility, but India just has to get its act together and make it happen, or it's going to really continue to lose in the competition race. Max, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. By the looks of it, it's a pretty simple music video. Men, some shirtless and body painted, singing against a black background. But since coming out last week, this catchy Cuban number, Patria y Vida, Homeland and Life has gone viral. The group's frontman says he's even gotten a call from the White House. The reggaeton track excoriates Cuba's communist dictatorship and uses the regime's own slogans to do so. It's a very bold take on a revolutionary slogan that was a favorite of Fidel Castro's, Patria Muerte, which means homeland or death. Roseanne Lake is The Economist's Cuba correspondent. And this is a phrase that you see on banknotes and on patriotic billboards across Cuba. These artists have taken that phrase and turned it into patria y vida, right? Homeland or life. They're trying to breathe new life into what they see as a very stagnant revolution that is sacabó at the end. And how do they do that, though? How do they get that message across? So the course of the song uses dominoes as a metaphor. They refer to the regime as a group that has been blocking dominoes. So blocking the dominoes is, is one in which you can't make a play that has no winner. And when they refer to those dominoes, they mean the perennial food shortages that Cuba suffers, the divided families, the weak Cuban peso, all of these things that for 60 years have persisted and caused a great deal of frustration and stagnation in Cuba. So who are the artists here? So you're talking about musical royalty, right? Yotuel, December Bueno, and the duo of Gente de Sona. These are Latin Grammy Award winners who have collaborated with Enrique Iglesias, Jennifer Lopez, Mark Anthony. I mean, they're very, very big names. And it was surprising to see some of them lend their voices to this song, especially Gente de Zona. I mean, three years ago, they performed a huge concert in Havana. 350,000 people were in attendance. Miguel Diaz-Canel, the, the leader of Cuba, was present. And they even got the crowd to clap for him. And of course, this infuriated Cuban-American musicians and politicians in Miami. So what was it then that, that inspired them to, if you will, change their tune? Yotuel was the artist who was sort of the, the mastermind behind this song, and he invited these others to participate. And his impetus for doing this song was the Movimiento San Isidro. So the Movimiento San Isidro is a very motley group of artists and academics that advocate for the freedom of expression. They've been doing this for a couple of years in Cuba, and their movement sort of came to a head in late November when their headquarters, where they were doing a, a hunger and, and thirst protest was broken into by the Cuban authorities. And so the music video, which has gone viral, has over 2 million views on YouTube in, in just over a week. You have images of, of this raid that are in the music video. And how has the, the government responded to that? 
Well, the state-run propaganda machine has sprung into action. So Cuban TV was interrupted at 9 p.m. so that everyone could clap and sing the national anthem together. There were also lengthy articles in state-run media outlets about how, you know, these musicians had been manipulated by anti-Cuban mafias in Miami. The president of the Casa de las Americas, which is a cultural institution, referred to the song as musical propaganda. There really just was a big smear campaign in response to sort of stifle the impact that the song had had. But what do you think the extent of that impact is? Do you think this is a sort of inflection point in anti-government sentiment? Well, the song has certainly drawn attention to the movement outside of Cuba. But as far as the repercussions that people inside of Cuba will be suffering, we've already started to see a few. So just this week, members of the police went to the home of one of the members of the Movimiento San Isidro. They had written Patria Vida outside. The authorities came, they painted over it, and then they wrote on their patio, Patria Muerte, Viva Fidel, basically just reaffirming. It's it's become almost like this childish war of you say this and I paint over it and I stifle you. But the fact that, you know, others are taking interest in what's going on in Cuba and and lending their voices to it, I think is promising. Roseanne, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey and Hannah Mourinho. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin, with additional production help from Emily Elias, Christopher Hooten, and Pete Naughton. Our sound engineer is Sol Rivers, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We will all see you back here on Monday. seen the headlines bonds are making a comeback but if you've ever tried to invest in bonds you know what a clunky complicated broken experience it can be that's why at public we took fixed income and fixed it now you can find evaluate and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate treasury and municipal bonds go to public.com forward slash the economist to get started full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.